Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Jennifer, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Excited to be here. So we've got a lot to talk about, but I thought a good starting place for the listeners would be for you to probably give a bit of background about where you started and where you've picked up all these ideas and what led you to your current concept and business. Yeah. So I, I started my career at McKinsey. Um, I uh, went to undergrad and um, it was the consulting firms and the investment banks who yes. recruited on campus, of course, showed up and had, you know, I'm from a, a small town in upstate New York, had no idea what these things were, but, you know, career services, make sure you get a, a crash course pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had studied economics and, and was, you know, just really sort of interested in economics and finance. So of course I went to the investment bank first and I spent a summer working at Lehman brothers. So I'm dating myself, uh, back in the day. And, uh, you know, I looked around and said like, these people seem really interested in making money. They don't seem yeah. particularly curious about the world. Um, at least not, not in the way that I kind of aspired to be. And so I went to the, the management consulting sessions and, and met the McKinsey people there and said, these people feel more like my tribe. Like these people seem really curious about how the world works, about how companies work, about how executives make decisions, about how teams can be making better decisions, uh, about what, what strategy looks like. And I happened to hit it off with the um, the head of the McKinsey office. And so I went and joined McKinsey, D.C. I had never been to Washington, D.C. before I showed up to work at McKinsey, D.C. Turns out I, I actually really like D.C., so that worked out well. Um, and I did the, you know, the typical consulting thing for, uh, you know, the span of over six or seven years. Um, I did a stint in business school in between. And there I did mostly organization and operations work um, and a lot for financial services firms and, and tech companies in particular. And if anyone has ever done that work as a consultant, you learn, you know, really that the name of the game is you go into an operations center and, you know, there'll be rows of people kind of sitting in cubicles or an open floor plan. And you try to figure out who are the best people in the center. And you go and you sit next to them and you befriend them and you just ask them like, Hey, what, what's different about you, right? What is it, what is yeah. it that makes you perform better than everyone else? You say it in a more tactful way. And you know, what, what they'd say to me, now I'm going to date myself again. They'd pull out a really thick binder and they'd thunk it down on the desk today. I hope that this is at least all digital to save some paper. And they would say, you know, here's all the stuff I was trained to do. It took me two weeks to learn yeah. all of this. But, uh, you know, I found these like 30 shortcuts instead. I, you know, I, I do it differently. Like, let me show you what I do. And, and being good consultants, we would obviously capture all of that information and pass it back to our clients. And I always thought at the time, like, gosh, if those people had had a way to share what they had figured out to do, and, and they, if they could have scaled that across that big ops center, like they could have had really big impact. And it, it kind of always bothered me, but I filed it away in my head as, well, that's a problem. Surely someone yeah. will solve someday, right? Maybe someone who's not me. And I ended up moving to, to San Francisco. And so, you know, I'm living in the heart of Silicon Valley. I have a lot of friends who are building and investing in, in early stage companies. And I caught the bug. 
And so I, I left uh, consulting to go into venture capital. I joined a, a firm called uh, Greylock Partners on the enterprise software side. Um, and I got really interested there. This is probably the former consultant in me um, in what the process looked like from the buyer's perspective. So, you know, here sitting in Silicon Valley, we talk a lot about what it means to sell software. And I got really curious, like, what does it mean on the other side? Why are people buying software? What, what do they consider? And, you know, it helps us be better investors, obviously, to understand what problems people were trying to solve, what, what they had budget for, how they thought about their tech stack. To me, it really yeah. scratched an itch and just trying to understand, like, buyers are people, they're executives who are just trying to solve problems and technology is a, is a tool to do that. And what does that look like? And I counted when I left, I, I talked to over 1200 of these, you know, kind of C-level folks at large enterprises to, to try to understand this. And, you know, my gosh, this is 10 years later now, uh, a lot of the same themes that I had seen when I was in consulting kept coming up. They'd, they'd phrase it in different ways, but they'd say things like, you know, I have all of this institutional know-how in my company. It's it's really what powers my company. It's all the knowledge of what are people doing when they show up to work every day, nine to five fingers on keyboard, trying to create value. And that walks out the door at 5 p.m. And I got to hope that it comes back. And I try to capture it, but I, I don't really have any good options, right? What do I do? I either tell someone, take time away from your job and write down what you know how to do. Or maybe I try to hire some version of, you know, 30-year-old Jennifer with her Lenovo ThinkPad as a consultant to, to try to create it for us. And so to me, that was really, I don't want to call it a light bulb moment because can a light bulb moment happen over the course of 15 years? Um, but it, it was really sort of a light bulb moment of, you know, gosh, this is still a problem and the, the technology today exists to actually solve it. And so I shifted myself quite unexpectedly from that's something someone else will surely solve someday to, gosh, no one has solved this. And this is such an important problem. And if you do solve it, like what an incredible force multiplier for these companies, for the lives of these people, like, you know, working inside of these companies every day, 40, 50 hours a week. Like what, what if I did that? Um, no one else has done it. It feels like something that I should do. It's certainly a problem that that I'm passionate about. And so I started Scribe. It's a very interesting focus. And I'll tell you why, because it's a very obvious problem that every company faces, mm-hmm. especially if you've worked in consulting. Right. Any services industry. The thing that I always found surprising is that, because I used to be a consultant as well, is that when a senior partner retires, all his knowledge goes within. Mm-hmm. And the firms do a lot to institutionalize that knowledge, but they're not even getting maybe more than 10% of what the person has in their head. So I always wondered, why do people allow so much value to walk out of the door and do nothing about it? So the question is, as you are working with clients to get them to use this capability you've developed through your startup, how easy is it of a sell to get them to see the value of institutionalizing the knowledge? Yeah. Consulting firms are such a great example of this. I remember, you know, one night when I was consulting in the team room, you get really punchy at like midnight, 1 a.m., right? And and we were like, we wonder what percentage of the value of our, of McKinsey, of our consulting firm is in our internal knowledge portal, which is exactly what you described where partners have to kind of share. And and so like we went through a bit of like a due diligence analysis, again, very, very sort of nerdy, punchy, you know, late at night kind of thing. And, and I can't remember the number we came up with, but it, it was like the majority of the, of the value of the company was this knowledge. And I think consulting firms do a way better job than pretty much any other type of firm in capturing that knowledge because it is so core to, to what they are. I mean, really they're people and intellectual property. 
Um, but to your point, it's, it's maybe 10%. You, you take a, a regular, you know, a firm, take, take a, take a bank, take a manufacturing, take, take anything, you know, that's, that's not kind of professional services. And I would argue they have less than 1% of that written down. And, and I focus specifically on processes with scribes, sort of the, the tactical, practical, like what is, what are people actually doing? And it's very, to your question about, you know, how easy of a sell is that it, it's, I always say like scribe is solving a problem that's hiding in plain sight, which is everyone knows that this is a problem. And the challenge for us is everyone just assumes it's a cost of doing business. Right. You sort of say, yeah, I know that's that's one of those age old problems. Right. I have all of this knowledge and it's it's mostly just stuck in people's heads and I, I do the best that I can. I know I get only a tiny fraction of it to come out and that just sort of is the way that it is. And so the the sort of message that I have to deliver when I talk to people about Scribe is it doesn't actually have to be that way. And at first they sort of look at me quite skeptically and they'll say, well, that that sounds too good to be true. So, OK, show me. And then when I, I do a demo, you know, a quick demo of, of the software, which will show some, the, the way our software works is it's a desktop application or a browser extension. It'll watch someone do work and it'll automatically create step-by-step -step written documentation with screenshots that show how you do that process. And then you can share that with a whole bunch of people and have it accessible to your people. So the idea is you have the best knowledge of what your experts know how to do automatically generated, almost like it's digital exhaust, the byproduct of them doing their work that is now available to everyone else. When they go to do that process, they can do it just like the best expert without anyone having taken any additional time. And so when, when I show folks a demo of that, I'll say the most common reaction I get is, well, that seems really obvious now, doesn't it? Like, why, why haven't I seen something like this before? Um, but it, it really is a challenge for any kind of new technology or, or any way of doing things is you're fighting sort of this mentality of like, I know this is a problem. I recognize it. I probably haven't actually sat down and quantified it, but it just feels viscerally, you know, problematic. But what do you want me to do about it? Right. I don't I don't have a solution. And so I just sort of accept it as a business problem. Um, and McKinsey has actually done some work in. Uh, of course, they have in. Um, and trying to quantify this. And, and they did a study a few years ago um, that said that the average knowledge worker spends 20% of their time just trying to find information on how to do their job or answering questions that colleagues are asking them on how to do their job. That's, that's one day out of five in a week. And so if I went to, you know, any CEO or team leader and said, what if I could give your people, you know, one day out of, out of the week back, everyone would say a resounding yes. But when you then say, well, okay, well, th this is what it actually takes, you know, th then you got to think about like the, the change management of it all. And so what I think about this as a technology leader is we have really designed around how do you reduce friction as much as possible? Because we all know how hard change management is, even for the, the most basic things, especially when you multiply it across a big organization. And so we think a lot as a, I do as a technologist and a, a product leader for my company about how do we take all the friction out and just make this as easy and easy and simple and not something else that you have to do change management for. Because if you're solving a real problem for someone, but they have to do a whole bunch of work and change a whole bunch of things to make it happen, like you're introducing so many barriers, the odds that they're actually successful go down exponentially. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. The challenge I've seen is that while people talk about the value of knowledge, it's one of those things where not a lot of investment is made in it. Yeah. I remember recently we were working with a Chinese startup that was trying to build an electric car in China. 
And we had found an Italian company to do the manufacturing for us. And I had the idea of using these motion sensor cameras installed around the entire production site that would track everything the workers do. Mm -hmm. And then it would convert it into a step-by-step -step process using software. That's very cool. And it was incredible because you have these, you know, cameras not quite sophisticated. It can zoom in and see what the worker is doing. It can create the steps. It knows the exact pressure sensor readings that were installed in that press at that time. What surprised me is that the contractor gave us permission to do it because that's the intellectual property for us to figure out how they manufacture is incredibly valuable but they didn't realize they were giving us access to so much intellectual property so what i've seen is companies talk about this a lot they invest in it but they're not really good at monetizing it yet i think we're still at the early stages of thinking about how to institutionalize knowledge or we're still in the I would say early stage of thinking, how do we get the most value from it? I think on the other side, there are also companies who don't realize there's so much value sitting there because that company, that contractor could have done what we wanted to do and it would have completely changed their workforce. Because one of the benefits from this process was that when a couple of workers retired, there was this big story about how we're going to replace them, but it wasn't that hard to replace them because we had all of the steps mapped out and we could train mm -hmm. people. So, my question here is that where do you feel the maturity level lies with clients when you talk to them? Clearly, they understand it when you put it down as saving one day, but that's just on the cost side. Do they see that the side of how to increase revenue on the top line? I, I love that example that you shared of the, the Chinese plant because that basically sounds like the live in-person IRL, IRL version of Scribe. <laughs> we basically yes. do that for all your digital processes. We'll watch people do digital work and, and document that. I, I mean, I feel like we're in the very early stages of companies under truly understanding the value of it and then knowing you need, you need two things. You need to value it and then you need to know what to do about it. I think most people I talk to at least viscerally on an intuitive level, understand the value of it. They might not be able to quantify it, but they, but they say like, gosh, I, I know this stuff's important, but I don't really know how to capture it. I don't know what to do about it. That that just sort of is the way it is. I, I would again say consulting firms are probably the most sophisticated for, for what I've seen around this. Yeah. Um, and they do a whole bunch of things, right? And, and, and one of which is they, they actually align incentives with um with publishing content like at least at mckinsey like a big part of your sort of internal currency was are you known for being a knowledge specialist in a particular area and part of the way that you do that is by publishing and sharing that info right and then becoming known as as the go-to person for that um but but i think we're in the, the really early days and and you know it, it kind of surprises me because if you think i'll be a little esoteric for a second and share how i kind of think about an organization like I, I would argue most organizations only really have three things you've got capital you've got people human capital and you've got processes like the stuff your people do every day to create value and that can take all different kinds of shapes it, and you have systems of record for your capital, right? You wouldn't run a big business without a big ERP system. And you have systems of record for your people. I'm sure a lot of people listening run on Workday or something, right? I'm a big fan of what Anil's built there. There's no equivalent for your processes or, or your knowledge around how people are actually taking action and creating value. And so that's a 
a third of the business equation that is a really valuable third that's really going unserved and undocumented right now. And so the thought exercise that I always go through with folks, especially when I'm, I'm wearing my scribe hat is, well, what could you do if you actually had all of that info? What if you could make it so that it was almost like tipping open the minds of everyone in your company and pouring out what they know how to do? How valuable would that be? What would that look like? If that were available to you, what could you do with it? And it's almost like going through this thought exercise of like, let's, let's assume it's possible. So I think part of it is people just assume it's not even possible, right? So let, let's assume it's possible. Suspend disbelief for a second. How valuable would that be? How could that change how you'd operate your business? Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about the numbers, because when we were working through the private equity side of our firm, we were crunching the numbers on average. This is on average, the multiples you would pay to buy companies in different sectors, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that hit me when I looked at the numbers is that consulting firms, law firms, accounting firms, dental offices had the lowest multiple. Right. And the reason they had the lowest multiple is because in the eyes of the valuers, the people doing the valuation, the vast value of a consulting firm is the relationship between a partner and a client. But when I was looking at that, I was thinking, where's the value of all the intellectual property? Why is it so heavily discounted? It's like, you know, when you talk about documenting processes, there's value in processes as well. But when you look at these valuations, it's as if all of that knowledge and all that capability, that entire repository has been heavily discounted. And it's interesting because we know there's value there, but it's not reflected in the numbers as much as it should be reflected. It's almost we have an old accounting style of doing things where we're valuing tangible assets we can touch and feel and sell at the end of the day. But intellectual property doesn't get the kind of recognition it should get. I've always found that to be really interesting about consulting firms because their multiples are what, like one one x revenue or something. Yes, and, exactly. And, and, and you know, whereas in tech, we, I mean, now we talk about different multiples after um, the market correction, but before we were talking about you know crazy, crazy yeah. multiples on top of revenue, um, and. You know, I've the way I sort of always intellectually reconciled it to myself is I, I a lot of it does just live with the partners in consulting firms. And if you do the thought exercise and pick your favorite consulting firm and say, okay, what if their best 50 or whatever number consultants yeah. like opt in left, what would happen to the business? And it would it would probably be severely negatively impacted. Right. I, I, at some sort of number, because it really is about the relationships and, and what those people know. And that's not scalable. Um, and the markets love scale. And I think the part that they're missing is how much of that, it, the investors and, and that kind of like logic is how much of that knowledge has been transferred to others um, and could be picked up by other people if those folks left. And I don't actually really know the answer to that. I mean, I'd, I'd like to believe for the sake of those firms that it, that it's a good number, but I'm, I'm not sure if it actually is because it's a really hard problem. It is a hard problem. And we, we know the results because we've seen this happen at law firms recently, whereby a group of partners who head up a practice at a law firm, ups and leaves and takes about 20 associates with them. And we've seen this whereby law firms have lost a capability mm -hmm. in one area and can't serve that sector anymore. So, you know, it's as you say, it's, it's a difficult so problem. So investors because, are perhaps right. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. The market is usually pretty good at figuring out where yeah. the value lies. And it's a shocking thing because 
when I was looking at those numbers, and I don't know if you agree with me with this, I don't accept the notion that mapping the processes and building a store of intellectual property is not valuable. I think we're not good at extracting the value from that, as opposed to there being no value in it. Right. I, I actually don't think it's that controversial to say there's no value, right? I, th I think most people would say, yeah, of course there's value in that. I think the question they would then ask it and, and maybe debate is how much value. And, and I would say, and, and I suspect you would say too, a lot of value, but maybe different people would would disagree on just how much. Um, and I think the the bigger holdup point for them is, and like, and what's the cost of actually yeah. capturing that? And I think that's the part that really catches people when they go to do that cost benefit analysis is they say, I know the benefit is non-zero. How much is it? And, and how much depends on, you know, sort of who you are and how much you've thought about it. And I would argue the people I meet who have thought more about it realize more and more just how much benefit is there. Um, but the cost is real, especially in a world where you say, oh, if I'm not using technology, if I don't have that software camera that maps your every move or something yeah. like Scribe that matches, you know, your your every digital process, then what's your alternative? It's it's literally to tell someone, hey, Mr. Mrs. Partner, you know, take time away from serving clients or doing whatever, sale, selling, you know, whatever it is that you spend your time doing and write down what you know how to do. Like that, that's not a popular ask, right? Or maybe you say a lot of companies will solve for this. They try to throw bodies at it and they say, oh, I'll hire a technical writer or consultants or someone to look over your shoulder and try to do it for you. But that again is not incredibly scalable and, and usually not a popular request either. And so there's just so much friction built into that cost um, that I think when most people, you know, do that calculus, it, it doesn't, it doesn't back out. And that's why we don't see, that's why we, we don't see most companies, you know, capturing, I would argue more than any single digit percent at absolute best of the, the knowledge that they have. You pointed out something quite insightful here, whereby you distinguish between the body of knowledge, including the processes and the ability to, the cost to use it mm. and extract it. It's a lot like a, a gold mining company. You can have the best, most amazing body of ore sitting three kilometers underground. But if the cost of extracting it is prohibitive, companies don't act on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the opportunity lies. And I mean, that's where your startup is also heavily focused. Is there a way to make the cost of extracting the value reaches point low enough that everyone benefits from using this capability. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our promise is what if we took that cost down to nearly zero? And we have, we've oriented a lot of our product decisions around really trying to get that cost to, to almost zero. So we will look at how long does it take someone from the moment they land on our site to the moment they're able to create their first automatic step-by-step -step guide? We call that a scribe. Uh, to, to being able to then share that with someone, to transfer that knowledge to someone else, and it takes on average four minutes. When we say like literally, That's how do we quick, make? Actually, it's very fat with no training or context for that person at all. And we actually test this across levels of digital literacy because there's different levels of digital literacy within companies. And we also look, our, our product right now is just in English and we, we've, Scribe's used in, I think, almost every country on the planet with a, a couple exceptions of, of um, you know, regimes where, um, where we aren't. Um, and uh, 
we, you know, that that's true even for non-English speakers. So we, we are really focused on how do we make it as easy as possible to just start using. And the average scribe takes 56 seconds to create. So, you know, really, really easy. The idea is you do it through the course of, of doing the process you would be doing anyway. So you just click the record button and you generate that report that you were planning to do anyhow, and you click stop record and it automatically has generated a guide on how to get that report, right? That you can then use to transfer that knowledge with someone else, whether they're a, a, a client or a customer or just a colleague asking a question. And so this is a, a really important pillar is how do you take that friction down to nearly nothing? Because even small amounts of friction, when we think about, and you talk to anyone who's done, you know, uh, any kind of product design or, yeah. or UX work, they obsess over friction because even something as simple as adding a few extra clicks within a, within a software will vastly reduce your conversion rates and the likelihood that someone actually uses it. And so when you're talking about something as difficult and gnarly as how do I capture all the institutional knowledge in my company, we had to create a product that was really easy, really, really easy, almost dead simple for end users to use and where their incentives were aligned as well. I think this is another big problem with with, you know, any kind of knowledge management, and I sort of say like knowledge management with a capital K within companies often means you've got like a council of people who are responsible for the knowledge and they will go out to the experts and say, please write down what you know how to do. Here's a wiki or something. Right. And that's a really unpopular ask because it takes a bunch of time. And, um, you know, for, for that person kind of writing it down, what, what do they really get out of it? Like, that's just time away from, you know, work they would otherwise be doing. And so we think a lot about like, how do we actually make this something that end users want to use? Not because yes. their boss is telling them to, not because it's part of some important top-down knowledge management initiative, but because it literally makes their day better and easier and means they can do their work faster and better and feel prouder of it and be able to go home earlier, right? Or whatever it is that they're trying to do. And so what we see and the way we've thought about it from a product perspective for Scribe is let's build something that people use because they're constantly getting asked questions from their colleagues. Hey, can you show me how to do this? Can you answer this for me? Or they're having to show their clients how to do something, right? And therefore, they will create documentation as digital exhaust because it's in their best interest, because it makes their lives easier. And then it just so happens to also create a lot of value for their team and for their organization when you start to build now a repository of this collective growing knowledge of how work is actually getting done. And so you really have to think about this at, at different levels and, and what the incentives are. And, and certainly for, for us and for me, again, as, as a product leader, leader, that's something we really obsess about is how do you have something that's very high ROI for, for the end user? And um, and how do you reduce friction dramatically? And that's yeah. true. I would argue, you know, even if you're not designing a product, but even any kind of initiative. And I think a lot of CEOs and so on misunderstand the effort to maintain their knowledge management systems. I'll give you an example of this. Mm. I was involved in a valuation for a consulting firm, a large consulting firm. This is a multinational firm, which I'll not mention. And they were very proud of the knowledge management system. And it was well-maintained, well-designed, and so on. But when you dig through it, you notice that the old documents from seven, eight years ago haven't been reformatted. So they don't right. open up in newer laptops. And what you actually have is, let's assume they have 10 million documents in their knowledge management system. Only about half of them can be opened. So you've got half of them, which are basically worthless. What a loss. 
you know, when I talk to executives about knowledge management, they fail to appreciate the operational complexity of keeping your knowledge in a state where it can be accessible. So imagine this half of the documents can't be opened because they're going to be opened with a version of Microsoft from before 2003. And nobody in that knowledge management team had said, we've got to open these documents, reformat them, update them, convert them, extract the knowledge in them, do something with them before they become, for lack of a better word, worthless. So I know when I speak to people, they understand knowledge management, they understand institutionalizing knowledge. But I don't think a lot of executives have thought through the operational problems in doing that. Do you also see that with clients you work with? Yeah. I mean, what's crazy about that is that consulting firm probably had a very sizable knowledge management team that's probably Huge. bigger than what most other companies have. And even yeah. they are struggling with, with what I'd argue something pretty basic, right? <laughs> How do we make half of our, our knowledge valuable? And you could look at it and say, gosh, what, what hope do the, the rest of us have? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say most executives that I talk to, and maybe I talk to a biased sample because it's folks who are willing to engage with me on the topic of knowledge management to begin with, right? Yes. So maybe they're they're sort of self-selecting in and of that. Although I would find most people that I talk to about this topic get pretty interested sort of regardless. Um, I would, I would say they do get to that place, at least a, a very initial place where everyone has experienced at least a microcosm of the pain you just described. Oh, we set up an internal wiki and, you know, we, and like, we've got a knowledge council or like a few people who maybe even their executives who dual hat or something, right. Who, who are responsible for this. And we tried a big push, but it didn't really work. Or even I experienced this. Maybe I wasn't part of our knowledge management team. I'm an executive here, but like, I find whenever I go into our internal wiki and I try to get that info, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty out of date. And so I'd say an often a question that I get is like, hey, this sounds really great. If you mean I can author, you know, content, um, if I can capture institutional know-how in a matter of seconds, that's wonderful. How do I actually manage it then? What, what do I what do I do with it? And I would say most documentation, and, and I'll put knowledge management in this category, the way it's it's structured today suffers from negative feedback loops. There's a downward spiral, right? Which is someone creates it. Maybe it's not even the person who was the expert or the person who needed to consume it. It could be a separate knowledge team, right? That could be more knowledge with a capital K, but regardless, someone creates it and then they put it in the wiki, the Dropbox, wherever it is that you store this kind of stuff. And then maybe someone views it. Maybe they don't. You don't know. You don't really get any feedback as the creator. And so you forget about it. And so therefore you don't update it. And then it goes stale. And then definitely people are not going to look at it because it's stale and inaccurate. And how many times do you have to go to the wiki and see that stuff is stale and inaccurate before you even stop going there? Because fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, I'm going to stop going there, right? It's just (laughs) not a good use of my time. And so now it's definitely never going to get updated. It's not invested in. And so you get this downward spiral. And so um, again, in in designing the product, we thought a lot about what do positive feedback loops, because you can flip that on its head, right? What do positive feedback loops look like? Not just in reducing the friction to update something, which can be real. That can be part of the problem why stuff doesn't get updated. The other part is like, you don't even know if it's valuable or or if people care at all. And so what if you could build in more social feedback elements, um, you know, to to creating this and and create those kinds of like positive rewards and and incentives for, for creators and make it easy 
easier for other people to be updating as well. Um, but I, I think this is, I talk a lot about like the death of the, the corporate wiki. Cause I would say yeah. every company that I talk to, I'll ask the question, like, do you have a place where most people, not even everyone, most people in your company know to go to if they have a question on how to do something or on how something is done at your company. And I would unscientifically say 90% of the time I get a sheepish grin and a shrug yeah. and people will say, well, sort of, we've got this one thing or more commonly they'll say, we've got a few, but you know, it's really different, different departments, not quite centralized, varying degrees of consistency, uh, maybe out of date. And so if you don't even have a place where people really know to go to get this info, then, you know, what, you're, you're not set up for success. And when you talk to executives, do you feel that the focus is on them getting their employees to institutionalize their processes and knowledge? And do you feel there's an equal focus on institutionalizing the processes and knowledge of the executive team? Because my experience is that the focus is on mid-level management and down, but when you get to the most senior levels, there's almost a view that there's no easy way to institutionalize the knowledge of senior people. I've always felt that was a kind of a myth that I've seen with clients. Has that been your own experience as well? Yeah, I'm laughing. Ab absolutely. Um, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with an executive about how to institutionalize their knowledge. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've always found that surprising. <laughs> It's it's always about my team, right? Yes. And uh, you know, part of that I can maybe understand because someone says I I already know what I know, yes. but I don't know what everyone else knows, and there's a lot more of them than they are of me. So you know, how how do I figure out what what's what's in all of their heads? And you know, if I can make you know, if I'm an I was just talking to to someone yesterday who runs a 30,000 30, person call center. Um, and he was like, you know, if I can, and he's like, and it, it's so inconsistent, you know, we try to do knowledge management. We've got almost a hundred percent turnover as you do in those call centers. That's yeah. not atypical. Um, and we spend, you know, two to three weeks training, you know, each one, but it's, it's, um, these are my words now, not his, you know, a bit of the wild west, yeah. um, because everyone sort of just does what they need to do. And if you've ever sat in one of those call centers, you know, like people, they've got six to 10 tabs open and they're all tabbing, just trying to get through stuff really fast. And so he was like, I would love to be able to, you know, understand what the different variations look like. And there's definitely a best practice. And if I could make each of those 30,000 people, even a small percentage more efficient, like maybe that would reduce my turnover. Maybe they'd have a better experience. It certainly would improve the KPIs of that team. And so I think there's a bit of a tendency to, to also like look at the numbers of people and say, gosh, what a force multiplier. Um, although if you're an executive, you should be a big force multiplier unto exactly. yourself for that company. <laughs> yeah, what I've actually seen is I remember speaking to the CEO of a major mining company once and I asked him this question, you know, you've obviously done amazing things. You've been through some difficult times with the company. We've just come out of a major recession and the company is probably not going to see one for the next 15 years. So that means for the next 15 years, you can have leaders that don't know how to deal with the recession. Wouldn't it be valuable to institutionalize what you've learned? And he looked at me and said, of course, I'm going to institutionalize it. I'm going to write a memoir. And I'm thinking, well, that's true. That's how most CEOs institutionalize their knowledge, right? They write a memoir. 
<laughs> I'm going to hire a ghost writer and, uh, and put out a great memoir. That's going to be a New York times bestseller. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. That's what people do. You know, what I found quite valuable is recording all your meetings and transcribing it and having a system to sift out all the important things and documenting it. That is a good way to keep track of what you're doing, but also very importantly to all your decisions, all your thinking sits in one place and everyone in the company can access it. It would be good if companies thought about handling the interactions of the executive team in that way, provided they can get through the legal hurdles. But it's almost a mindset shift whereby executives need to understand they need to institutionalize their knowledge as well. Yeah. And, and like, I talk a lot about how do you find force multipliers and scaling yourself? Yeah. That's like one of my big themes and I'm obsessed with efficiency personally. Um, and so I always think about like how, how part of, part of efficiency is like, how do you scale yourself? Yes. Um, and I think it's just a different mindset that most people don't have, maybe even ironically among executives. Cause if you think about it, they're often running large teams of people, which should be about scale. Um, but like, I'll give you an example from a couple hours ago, we had our, our team all hands meeting and we talk a lot as a company about being a rapid learning machine. Um, and so for us, especially as a technology startup, that's often about how do you run rigorous experimentation, right? Or around the product, around these features of like reducing friction, right? If we take this part out of the product, we make this easier. Like, will we see, you know, people are able to create scripts faster or, or get to kind of success quicker, whatever it is that we're trying to move. And so we had one of our executives who was actually a, a PhD in biology and now a marketer. Um, so very fitting, uh, do a session uh, for the company on how she thinks about setting up experiments. And like, and what does that look like? And that was a great example of knowledge transfer. She made it quite fun, but I would argue is like a way that she is scaling herself and being a force multiplier on the company by saying, you know, Hey, here's something that I know. And, and part of my special sauce is that I'm really good at thinking about this and what this looks like in, in the way that we run marketing here. And so I'm going to share this with everyone else so they can think about what this looks like in their departments. And I think that's the kind of thing where I, I try to do that a lot, you know, as, as a CEO is sort of like go to, to each of my leaders and be like, what is it that you know, that's special and different? And how do we get you to share that with the people who need it, where it can be a force multiplier. And as soon as you ask people they're they kind of light up and they're really excited to do it. Cause it's yes. usually something they're really passionate about, but they don't independently think, oh, hey, this would be a really great idea to share, right? I think everyone's sort of just in the grind of doing their day to day. And it's only when you kind of tap them on the shoulder and say, well, hey, don't you think other people would really benefit from learning about this too, that they sort of light up? Yes. It's not enough to incentivize if it's not part of the culture. Right. I've right. seen companies have these great incentivization models, but usually consulting firms, whereby if you load up so many documents, you get so many credits and it shows up in your performance review. But when you speak to the consultants, there's not a culture of sharing and caring. So nothing really happens. It just becomes a, a brutal process whereby people have to force themselves at the end of an engagement to start loading up documents and cleaning it and sending up to repositories and so on. So you mentioned incentivization. So I, I would actually argue McKinsey did that differently, or at least yeah. they did back, back when I was there and they did a good job because yes, you can game sort of like uploading the documents, right? And you upload something that's like not quite quality or original thinking or whatever. And you sort of say like, ah, it's up there. See, I can check this box on my performance evaluation. 
I think where it actually comes to play within the culture, at least within consulting firms, is like there's very within McKinsey, there's very much an emphasis. They would not use these words. These are my words, not theirs. Um, there, there's very much an emphasis on building your personal brand. Yes. Right. I become known as the go-to person Absolutely. on climate change, right? And what that means for energy companies, whatever the topic might be. And so I am quite incentivized by that to to upload and share documents after engagements, but they better be high quality documents. And I better be running around and talking to people over lunchtime discussions and at happy hour and at firm events and whatever about how passionate I am about climate change and you know what I've learned there and the work that we're doing. And I hope that when they have a client who wants to talk about this topic, they're gonna pull me in, right? As, as kind of a content expert. And so you're right. I think it's not enough to say incentives. When people say incentives, they often think compensation or performance reviews, but there's a lot of social parts of that as well, right? That are just around sort of like, how do you build influence? What is the behavior that gets sort of recognized and positively reinforced by leadership? That's a good point, but it touched on what I said earlier, whereby the culture obviously supported that. Mm -hmm. The culture is what mattered because I remember when I was a consultant, well, when I became a partner, actually, I was writing this articles and doing this work on an esoteric area of risk and strategy. But I think I was one of the few people who would share my work. And mm-hmm. because I shared my work, people from all over the world would find it because there was not much being published by other people. I'm not saying my work was necessarily better. I just shared most of it. But it's exactly what you said happened. I became known as that guy. Right. And I didn't have to go look for clients. A partner would hear a client say something about the topic that search inside that find a document I put out and they would bring me to meet their clients. It made my life a lot easier, actually. I'll share an example of this that's really popular in in technology and particularly among startups right now, and it's called Build in Public. Um, So if you're active on Twitter at all around, um, you know, sort of startups and, and technology, you will see this a lot whereby people share what they're learning as they're building in that moment. Right. So, oh, we we launched this product. Here's what we were trying to achieve. And and here's what we've learned so far. Or like they'll track even how their company is hitting certain milestones that they set. And it's this idea of flipping inside out the things that you previously would sort of hide from the world, right? The sausage making, and then you sort of only share the polished outcomes. And and now the theme is very much, I'm going to bring you along on my journey and share with you what I'm learning as I'm doing it. You see the sausage being made and I'll tell you like how I've learned from it and what I'm going to do differently next time. Um, And it's very much through this ethos of like, we all learn together. Um, what if everyone were sharing what they're learning, especially if we're on similar journeys, could we all just go a little faster and do a little bit better together? And you see that culturally very rewarded, um, at at least again, sort of within, within these circles where companies that build in public, they build better followers. Like, you know, they're just, they're able to grow faster because there's more company awareness. It's a, it's a brand building and marketing exercise. It becomes, um, a better source of feedback for them. People are looking at their product. They're giving their feedback. They're getting better at it. And and I would argue that has analogies to, you know, any individual, even just sharing what they're learning, even if that's, you know, internally within your colleagues. I think the example that you just shared for, for what you did is, is like a build in public analog for what that looks like inside of a consulting firm. Yeah. And I think the most important point here is that you have to have a culture where it's okay to show you making mistakes if you're going to mm-hmm. share as you are doing it. 
Right. Because in many places, you are punished if you make a mistake. Therefore, nobody shares what they're doing in real time. I think Silicon Valley is different, whereby they're not worried about how many mistakes they make as long as the feedback loop is short and they can learn from it. Absolutely. I, I would argue that's probably one of the special sauces of, of Silicon Valley. You know, when I was in venture capital, we would have um, executive teams from all around the world come and visit us. Um, and, you know, they'd come spend half a day in our offices and, and I'd meet with them and it's sort of like, well, you know, hello, glad you're here. How can we help you? <laughs> why, why are you spending half a day with us? Right. What, what, what are you hoping to learn? And what I would often hear is we want to be more innovative. That's <laughs> okay. Well, innovation means a lot of different things. What yes. does that mean to you? And often it would they would they wouldn't articulate it this way most of the time. But but one of the underlying currents and themes would be this idea of like what we see in Silicon Valley is you celebrate failure, and we think that's really great, and we would love to figure out how we do that more as a company. Um, because, you know, for the reasons you just mentioned, like we, we don't learn fast enough if, if people hide it. We don't do enough if people are afraid of failing to begin with. And so don't even try the things that might seem crazy or, or out there. And I would say even running a startup in Silicon Valley, it's something that I have to fight every day in, in really trying to, you know, push the culture and making sure people celebrate failure and feel the psychological safety around it. You know, I, when we were, I told you, just came from my company, all hands in, we were talking about this experiment framework and I say it all the time. And I, I sort of said it again there. I'm like a broken record. I was like the, the best case scenario is we try something and it works. The second yes. best scenario is we try something and it doesn't work. And we just learned, you know, Hey, don't do that again, or that will inform what we do differently. Next, the worst case scenario is we never even try or we try, but we only half-heartedly try and we kind of hide parts of it and we don't actually get the data to learn. And so the 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 thing you need to celebrate here is just doing something for the sake of of getting data and like and learning from that and, and creating a, a culture around learning and a growth mindset. Yes, I remember working with a bank once and they had this pretty phenomenal knowledge management system. I think it's one of the best I've seen. And even though I'm not a knowledge management consultant, whenever I go to clients, I'm quite interested to see how they institutionalize knowledge. It's a pet project of mine. I, I'm interested in that area. What, what have you learned? One of the things here I've seen in this client is that they documented only their successes. Huh, and I would yeah. ask them, you know, you had this problem recently. It's in the press. You know, where's that document? They said, well, there's a law firm that did the report. It's with the law firm. And I've seen this with many companies. They don't document failures. They don't analyze failures. They don't put it out there to be shared. There's a culture of not talking about failures, which is why it keeps repeating. And it's not just- It almost just feels like bank. we need to not call it failures, right? You need to call yes. it learnings. Yeah, because if you keep punishing people or ostracizing them for being part of an experiment that failed or a gap in a system- you can see it in the knowledge management system. There are no failures. It's only successes. And that's one of the tests I do when I look at companies. I look at how do they document things that didn't work? And the mature companies tend to document things that didn't work. And secondly, they make it publicly, not publicly, they make it available mm. to employees as opposed to hiding it with a law firm and only releasing it if asked on by the press or something like that. You know, we talked about maturity, about this willingness to fail and share failures. 
it actually can have a material impact on a company if they're not willing to talk about failures. Absolutely. This is something we do very intentionally. Again, you, you sort of think about like the, the influence model and what are all the different levers that you, you can pull. And so one of them for us is, is just like making it really easy. And we've created a structure where we track every experiment that we run and the results of it. And it all gets posted, you know, in, in one central place. And you can obviously sort and tag by, you know, different departments and things like that, but it's available to everyone. And it's incredibly helpful to go back and look and see, oh, we did something a few years ago and it didn't work. And here's what we learned from it. So when new people now, or sometimes even the same people, and it's been a few years and it's not so recent in your mind, can look back and remember, ah, yes, here's what we had done. Here's what we learned from it. Let's not make, let's make sure we don't do the same thing again, or this will inform, you know, us doing something different now, but you have to be intentional about it. Like human nature will not put it down on paper and will not go look at it again don't like to talk about things that make them uncomfortable, especially yeah. they don't want to keep evidence of it in a knowledge management system. Right, right. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much. That was a very good podcast. It's very rare when I get to speak about knowledge management to anyone, actually. But I do think it's a big competitive advantage that companies need to exploit if they want to stay ahead of the pack. And as you say, it's about reducing that cost. That's the key thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would argue even kind of in the, the the economic times that we're likely to be moving into now, companies are going to be tasked with doing more with less, probably yes. more, more than they ever have before. And so figuring out like what what is all the special sauce in your company, all of the valuable things that people know, and how do you make that more fluid and be able to, to translate that across people? So you sort of up level, you know, everyone that you've got and, and the work that you're being, you're doing, I'd argue is like one of the, the biggest competitive unlocks that you could have as a company in this time. Yes. I mean, that's a good point. We're going into a recessionary environment. Some would say it's not already here. We're also in a tight labor market. So training and retraining mm-hmm. is a huge cost. This is a way to address two big focus areas going forward. So thank you, Jennifer. I enjoyed that. I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.